This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you are listening to Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics, the podcast where there is just so much to talk about. Now, if you've listened to one of our episodes before, welcome back, and we're glad to have you with us. If you're new here, same, welcome, and we're glad you're joining our conversation. So you can tell by the name, we talk about pregnancy, parenting, and politics, because seriously, my friends, the three are intricately entwined all over the world. And for most of my American listeners, it's a huge topic of conversation. Uh, I am the author of Common Sense Pregnancy, the book, which you can pick up on Amazon, uh, at your bookstore, wherever you get your books. I am also the author of Mom's Side of the Story, where I want you to pick that up over on my website, jeanfaulkner.com, and I want you to start documenting your own pregnancy story. Uh, let's see, what's going on? We are in the middle of historic times here in the United States. The impeachment pre- proceedings on President Trump and all the information that is pouring out about his crimes are just dominating every conversation, headline, and news lead. There's almost nothing else to talk about right now. I've never seen anything like it. And I am way older than most of you and old enough to have kind of, you know, vague recollections of Watergate, Watergate happening during my childhood. It made an impression on me, even though I was a young child at the time. And what we're seeing and learning learning now appears to be just so much worse. However, while this fiasco plays out on the news, other stories are still going on that we've quit paying attention to. Parents and children are still being separated at the border and held in dangerous subhuman conditions. Women and children are still being subjected to a host of inequities and especially in developing countries and refugee settings, and they hold them back from just crushing it in every aspect of their lives. There are more atrocities going on right now than I can mention. And if you're like me and many Americans, it's overwhelming and it's exhausting. A lot of us feel the need to just tune out. But at the same time, We're also hearing from presidential candidates for the 2020 election and the conversations we're finally having about human issues like childcare, education, healthcare, and violence. They're offering me glimpses of hope and I'm grabbing that hope. Man, oh man, I am grabbing that hope. Now I know that it's a candidate's job to make big promises of sweeping change that, you know, they aren't in absolute power to enact. Or so you'd have thought prior to this presidency, right? But the talking points that candidates are mentioning are ones that are incredibly important uh, to a vast number of Americans. The things that they're talking about are, you know, woven into the fabric of our days. And I call them human issues instead of what they're usually called women's issues or women's and children's issues as if they don't apply to every human of every gender in every corner of the earth, they're human issues. I'm grateful that during this dark week in politics, we're also hearing glimpses of hope and promise for what America could be. According to several candidates, America could be a country where people are no longer unfairly incarcerated, where families are no longer separated, where healthcare and childcare 
are no longer unaffordable privileges, where education is available to everyone who wants it, where water is clean, air is breathable, and old people are living their best lives. It's a country where everybody matters, but most especially those who have been marginalized forever. Candidates offer sweeping change, and honestly, I think that's what's needed right now, massive, sweeping, radical change. Let's see what happens next, huh? Okay, in the news, what else? I was reading the New York Times today, and there was an article titled, Intensive Care, What Makes a Good Parent? I thought it was kind of interesting. It's written by Dr. Perry Class, and it's about a study that recently came out that looked at the results of a nationally representative survey in parents were presented with fictional vignettes, little stories about um, elementary school kids or kids of that age. And um, there were two different responses that suggested two different types of parenting or schools of parenting. One is called concerted cultivation and the other is called natural growth. And the parents that took the survey were asked to rate... Uh, the choices that the parents made in these vignettes from poor to excellent. And the story is a, is a really interesting story. I, w- I want you to go take a look at it. But just to give you kind of the highlights of it, um, the intense style of concerted cultivation, um, it describes in which parents act direct, directly and decisively in the child's life. And everybody considered this a, an example of good parenting. Um, And it didn't really seem to matter who the parent was, male or female, what socioeconomic class, educated or not, you know, what race, what gender, oh, you know, it didn't matter. Everybody thought that concerted cultivation was the the better option than natural growth. And one example that they gave was there was a child, a school-aged kid, who complains that she's feeling bored after school. Um, The Dr. Class writes, as a mother of three and a pediatrician, would I vote for offering extracurricular activities or go with what my own mother might have said, go outside and play? Or should I look for a write-in space to answer what I actually would have said? The house is full of books. In another vignette, a boy asks his busy mom to draw pictures with him. Well, there's the good intensive parenting response. She stops what she's doing and sits down to draw with him, then offers him art lessons. But what I would have done would, without question, have been option two. Tell him you're busy right now and suggest he work on his drawings. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of leaning pretty close to Dr. Class here. <laughs> the article goes on to describe how even though all parents seem to think that concerted cultivation that would be offering the extracurricular activities and stopping whatever you're doing to draw. Um, that's supposed to be the better model of parenting than natural growth, which would be, you know, the other option of go outside and play or, you know, go read a book or something like that. It also, the article also goes on to say that even though parents of low so- lower socioeconomic statuses thought that concerted cultivation was the superior parenting model, they also admitted that they didn't necessarily have the time or resources to support it in their daily lives. And it also said that you don't really have to spend a ton of time with your kid for both parent and child to see the benefits. Um, And, you know, there's just, there's a lot more there. What I really found interesting was the comment section. 
Um, that's where you're going to find countless ideas for, you know, how to provide that, you know, one-on-one attention to your child um, without necessarily having to, you know, pay a lot of money or spend a lot of time. And, you know, a lot of parents have chimed in there and they've got really good, good advice. It made me think about my own parenting style as a working mother with a house full of kids and aging parents. I had a lot on my plate and I didn't always have the time and resources to stop doing the dishes or changing a diaper or paying the bills to, you know, plop on the floor for Legos. I did, however, um, I, I, I recognized that my time was pretty, um, divided and there were a lot of them and just one of me. And so I did it another way. I included my kids in my life as much as possible, um, including I brought them to the hospital to hang out while I was working. Um, I'd bring them into the kitchen to cook together. Uh, I'd drive them to and from the soccer and dance practices that enriched their lives and made mine saner by giving them outlets for their energy and creativity that I didn't have to engineer or provide. All the kids were big readers and crafters and artists and, um, you know, they were pretty good at filling up their downtime. And they also had siblings to play with who were way more fun than me. And I'm not going to lie, my husband is the fun parent and way more down for a game or TV marathon or a puzzle than I was. I, on the other hand, have always been definitely the one they'll come to first when something serious is going down. So in our house, that's how we balanced cultivation versus natural growth. Go read the article. See what feels good to you. Um, it's in the New York Times today, October 4th, 2019. And check out the comments. Lots of experienced parents chiming in there. Let's take a real quick break and then we'll get this week's guest on the line. Okay, we are back. So this is National Midwifery Week, which is an annual event where we give midwives a big shout out for all the great work they do. I'm a big fan. In fact, I think that midwives um, should lead the way in overhauling America's maternal health and reproductive health system. That's my opinion. Here in Portland, Oregon, midwifery care is normal. It's available at all the major healthcare systems. It's everywhere. It's no mystery here about what midwifery is. But in many parts of the country, it's still a real unusual thing. And people still ask me all the time what the difference is between a doula or a nurse and a midwife. And I thought that this week, what we do is talk to our favorite midwife, Chris Beard, to find out what midwives really do. Let's call her up. Hey, Chris, it's Jeannie. Hey, Jeannie, how are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm good. Good. So everybody who has listened to this podcast knows you already, but for those that are brand new to the podcast, why don't we get you to answer the big first question? Who are you and what do you do? I am Chris Beard. I am a nurse midwife for Kaiser in Portland, Oregon. I have been working for Kaiser for 23 years, and I've been a midwife for 25. I am a mom of two girls. Who are teenagers. Who are teenagers. I guess girls is the wrong uh, word. I'm a mom of two uh, young ladies. You know, it's funny, though, is that, you know, my my older daughters are, they're 30 and above, and I still call them the girls. It's what they're always going to be. We get to. We're their moms. We get to call them what we want. 
<laughs> true, true. And I do call them the girls. Yeah, yeah. Girls? <laughs> yeah. So what have you been up to lately? So I have just settled my 14-year-old into her freshman year of high school. Wow. And am preparing my senior to make that college journey. So I feel like I am um, shepherding in and out. Yeah, you really are. Yeah. What a, yeah, coming and going. Yep. So this is the year where your daughter's going to be filling out all the college applications and doing all of the essays and correct making all of her yeah. decisions and um you know she's very busy so f- helping her figure out how to prioritize her time this fall is pretty important yeah. she's pretty good about that stuff but there's been a few little tweaks that we've made to her priorities as she's started out the school year and you know dived in deeply to the college application process yeah. Yeah. And for you, you've got a big job to do too. I think it's the hardest job. You mean watching them do it <laughs> and helping them? And letting yeah. and letting go. You have a, a yeah. year to let go. I hate it. I hate that. <laughs> uh, I know that for a lot of parents, they get to this senior year and they've just freaking had it because teenagers, maybe you're aware of this, can be challenging. Have you heard? Um, actually I have some firsthand experience with that. So yes, I have heard. Huh? Huh? Me too. I, I have, you know, you, there is some of that where you get, they get to that age and, you know, senior year, they're so busy, they're barely home at all. And when they are home, you know, there can be a lot of sort of straining at the reins and it's hard. It's a hard year, I think. It, but then they go. It, it is a hard year, but it's really exciting. And I mean, this is what you do it for, right? To mm-hmm. to shepherd these these people along, to have them become um, caring and functional grownups, and then helping them make that step. And yeah. call it- and hopefully, hopefully, while they're being caring, functional grownups, they're also just exploring life and being creative and having fun and making good friends and falling in love and and you know all of that sort of starts with what they learn at home. Yeah, and making mistakes and recovering from your mistakes and being willing to put yourself out there. Yeah, yeah, and knowing that once you've put yourself out there, there's a soft landing place back home. For sure. Yeah, it's a big job. It's High five. It's very exciting. It's very, um, you know, I'll be sitting here in a year having all this behind me and it'll be very interesting to see where we're at. Yeah. Yeah. And then you're going to blink your eyes and you're going to be doing it again yeah. with your youngest. Yeah. yeah. True. Yeah. I True. Know. It's an astounding process, really. Yeah. You know, as they say, the days are long, but the years are short. And I'm feeling mm-hmm. that right now for sure as a parent. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I get it. Senior year. I'm there with you. Yeah. But that's what I've been up to. Full full plate at home. All right. Well, it's National Midwifery Week. And um, our last conversation was about antidepressants and depression during pregnancy. And boy, did that episode get a lot of downloads. It really seemed to fill a need. And so here it is, National Midwifery Week, and there's nobody in the world I'd rather talk to than you 
And just sort of to lay down what that means for listeners is it was um, created by the American College of Nurse Midwives to celebrate and recognize midwives and midwife-led care. And this year's, you know, every year there's sort of like a hashtag or a theme or something like that. And this year it is midwifery is the answer. And I want to talk about why we need to recognize and celebrate midwives and midwifely-led care and how midwifery is the answer. But I think that first, a lot of women still don't really even know what midwives do and how they differ from obstetricians and why they're, you know, for a lot of women as good as or even a better option for prenatal and labor and delivery care and well woman health care than a traditional OB-based care. And so I thought we should probably sort of talk about that. What What is the difference? What it, why, What's the question I'm You're trying, trying to ask to here, say, Chris? Help why me. Why would I want a midwife? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. yeah. So midwives have been around forever. As long as women have been giving birth, they've been helped along by someone else, usually another woman. Midwife actually means with woman. So yes, there are men midwives. Um, I believe that men midwives make up about 2% of uh, midwives in the nation. Um, I am a nurse midwife, which means I have uh, a background in nursing. Um, So I'm a registered nurse, and then I have additional training in midwifery, which in my case was a master's in nursing. Um, Midwives are very good at what we do. So midwives provide care for women from the time you need care in your teens until you're ending your need for care in your 60s and 70s. So we provide care throughout the lifespan. Um, Of course, most people think of midwives as providing care during pregnancy and birth, uh, but midwives do other things too. Um, So why would you want a midwife for your prenatal care? Well, a midwife is going to be really focused on you and your pregnancy journey, your experience through this process. And during prenatal care, midwives provide a lot of education and a lot of one-to-one time where people can actually ask their questions, talk about what's going on in their lives. In some midwifery practices, uh, patients have one midwife for their care, and then they get potluck for whoever's on call. In other practices, midwife, I mean, excuse me, patients meet every midwife in the practice, and then they they have at least seen the face of the midwife that comes to help them with their birth. And you know, depending on where you live, one or both of those models might be available. Um, the practice that I'm in, people see one or two people for their care. And then when they come in to have a baby, um, it's the midwife who's working who helps them have their baby. So on labor and delivery, midwives take care of low risk, moderate risk, and in some practices, high risk women, which means that having the midwife does not mean you can't have an epidural if that's what you want. Um, We provide support to people to help them accomplish their own personal goals for the birth. So if your goal is to have an unmedicated birth, we want to help you do that. If your goal is to have a birth with an epidural, we want to help you do that too. And one of the best things about midwifery care is that we really truly believe in the normal and we're experts in the normal. So if we're taking care of you and something is not normal, we're alert to that and we're going to work to figure out what do we need to do about that. Your labor is going slowly or suddenly your baby's not tolerating labor. You know, in my, we 
walk out the door, get the physician, talk to the physician, and the physician either takes over care or um, comes to be part of the team at that time and gives, gives his or her input about what needs to be happening. So, you know, when you have a midwife for your birth, you have an expert, an expert in birth. In normal birth, which is, you know, which in is normal birth. applicable to the majority of women, like 85% of women who are having babies. The difference that I see yeah. is that while many, many, many obstetricians and um, family practice you know, medical doctors practice a lot like midwives. Their training is more directed towards um, complications. And so your OB is going to be the one you want to have in your room when things are more difficult. I mean, it, that isn't to say that an OB can't provide completely normal you know, prenatal and, and labor and delivery care, but they're trained in medical school to root out the big, big problems. Is that a, would you say that's correct? Yeah. It's true. Yes, that's correct. And I think that sometimes because they are um, trained in the medical model, they, um, they look at things through the lens of what can Mm -hmm. go wrong and they sort of miss the, everything's fine. Nothing's going wrong Right. right now. Especially because, you know, labor is kind of a high drama you know, it's, there's a lot of noise and pain and just a little bit of chaos that goes on with contractions and birth. And sometimes it doesn't look normal, even though it's a completely normal process. And, you know, it can be, I think, easy for women sometimes to realize that this completely foreign thing that's happening to their body is actually normal. You know, I've, I've seen that happen where they then want to like go to the, expert in abnormal to fix it. Well, actually, it's a normal process. It's really weird for you. Thank God it doesn't last, you know, for too long and doesn't happen to women's bodies too many times in their lives, but it is normal. It's normal. So, we talk about the midwifery model of care. Can you describe it a little bit and then tell me what it looks like in, you know, sort of regular practice? So, I would say the midwifery model of care is um, centered on the physiologic process of birth, the normal process of birth, and the normal process of pregnancy. And it's really driven by the woman, driven by Mm -hmm. the patient. Um, So for me, um, when someone comes in, they may or may not have a lot of questions and a lot of concerns about nutrition and pregnancy, or they may have a lot of questions and concerns about preparing a sibling for pregnancy. So I'm going to spend my time with that person talking, talking more about that issue at her visit rather than some scripted, okay, you're 28 weeks. We got to do this, this, and this. Um, And I think the midwifery model of care on labor and delivery is, you know, supporting women to have a spontaneous and physiologic birth when that is appropriate for them. So not intervening unless intervention is necessary. And, um, Mm -hmm. So I would say that for me, the midwifery model is based in the normal and just keeping things normal. And when things are not normal, deviating from the plan and, and um, getting, ex- getting input from other experts like the perinatologist or whoever you might need. Um, so to me, the midwifery model of care is supporting the normal and supporting the physiologic process of pregnancy and birth. And tailoring the 
the care to meet the woman's needs where she is then. Correct. Yeah. Tailoring, meeting the person where they are. Yeah. Yeah. And for, you know, for the teenagers, it's a different place than the 40 year old having their first baby. Right. Yeah. And each person, you know, has their own, their own uh, hopes and desires for their birth and trying whether or not those would be my hopes and desires for my birth, you know, supporting them through their, their individual process. So midwives tend to be able to spend a little bit more time with women during each appointment than an obstetrician does. And that's something that really can change the dynamic of your healthcare structure because you it's so there there's so much stress in you know trying to get your questions answered and describe what is going on for you and trying to figure out what's normal and what's next and test evaluations. I mean, it can be a really compressed period of time that you spend with your practitioner. If you've got a little more time and you're more comfortable, I think it's a more efficient way to go about providing real care. And I'm wondering what that looks like from your side of the table. So I work for an HMO and my appointments are the same length as the physician appointments who are doing prenatal care. So um, in our setting, you have the option of traditional care, which is one-on-one with a provider or centering prenatal care, which is group prenatal care. And um, many of our first-time moms or people new to the area choose group prenatal care. And they, they basically meet with their midwife and the midwife's assistant and a group of anywhere from seven to nine women who are of the same gestational age that they are, and they meet for two hours. So in group prenatal care, you definitely have, you know, there is no compression of the visit. You have plenty of time to talk about your um, concerns and find out from not only from your practitioner, but from your other peers who are experiencing pregnancy at the same time as you, what's normal and what's not normal. If you hear three other people in your group say, oh my God, my pubic bone hurts a lot, then you realize that's normal. Um, So there's a lot of great things about centering prenatal care, which around the country is really a midwifery-led initiative for people to have group prenatal care. In the one-on-one care, you know, my visits aren't necessarily longer, um, although they can be because people, you know, I try to be with, meet people where they are, and if they need more time at a visit, I try to give it to them, but they are scheduled at the same intervals as they are for the physician. So, you know, I think, I think my approach in trying to meet people where they are is just letting them lead the discussion. And, you know, I have patient handouts. And if, if our discussion has been primarily on something that was woman led, and I forgot to, I didn't have time to talk about, okay, next time you're getting your glucose test, I'll just tell the person as they're leaving, oh, hey, I put the info about your next visit on your after visit summary. Be sure to look at that before we see each other again. Smart. I, I love that that is a possibility now. That is the beauty of the electronic medical record is that um, you know patients have access to. And so you don't have to necessarily remember every single thing that got said at your appointment. You can go to the after visit summary and read it and go, oh, right, right, right. I'm supposed to do that. Yeah. The other thing that we can do in our setting, which I think is very helpful for some people that, you know, people come to their visits and they're like, oh, I had some questions, but I forgot. And so, you know, I have the ability for people to send me an email. And if you send me an email and ask me a a simple or even a complicated question, I can 
answer that for you and send it back to you. So even if you forgot it during your visit, you can like two days later, you can send me an email and I will, I will get you the answer to your question. So that's, that's also a great thing so that sort of, you know, the things that help me provide the kind of care I want to provide in the limited time that I have in the office is that I try to use those tools that are available to me, um, like phone calls or, or emails or just having a really elaborate after visit summary. Those yeah. things can help a lot. I love it because it's, you know, it's taking care of patients who live in the real world. Exactly. You know, if you didn't get a chance to ask your question during the appointment, you don't want to wait until the next appointment. No. Or maybe you don't want to make a phone call, but you've got a minute right now in the middle of your workday and you can shoot off an email and later on, you know, it's just, it's efficient. It's, it's brilliant. I love that. And that's, know, the, that's the good part of technology. And really, I mean, I've been a midwife for 25 years and although midwifery philosophy and, and many aspects of midwifery care are the same as when I graduated 1993, many, many things are different. And, you know, patient, patient access to information and technology is, is huge, huge. Yeah. And so just being able to, you know, give care the way people need it. People want an answer and they can, they can get a ping on their phone and get their answer. Mm -hmm. It's a great thing. Yeah. It's a great thing. Yeah. Technology has worked in our favor in many, many ways. And, you know, we could have an entirely different conversation about the negative impacts of technology on women's health and specifically in labor and delivery, but let's save that for another conversation. Um, what do you think is the most important message that you want listeners to know about midwifery care? Midwifery care is a great option for almost everyone. I would say that everyone deserves a midwife and some people also need a doctor when it comes to pregnancy care. And midwives are practicing in all 50 states in the United States. We, of course, are concentrated more in the city and more on the coast. Midwifery is legal in every state in America. And um, there, are, there are places in the country where every hospital has a midwife and there are places in the country where maybe just one hospital in your city has a midwife. But midwifery care is everywhere and um, everyone deserves a midwife. I agree. And it doesn't have to be an either or model. You can have a midwife and an obstetrician. Yes. Yeah. You could have a midwife and an obstetrician. And in our practice, you know, when people come to the hospital to have a baby, there is a midwife and a physician on labor and delivery 24 hours a day. So you do get, even if you never meet the physician, the physician is there to assist if you need anything, right? if anything is needed from him or her. And so I feel like um, I'm, you know, I've practiced in a variety of settings in my career and I feel like um, the model I'm in now with a, with a team based care on labor and delivery is this is the best model there is. I agree. Let's take a real, real quick break. And then I'm going to come back and ask you a few more questions. Sure. Okay. We're back. So Chris, personal question. Why did you become a midwife instead of an obstetrician? That is an interesting question. And I kind of thought you might ask me that. So, hmm. um, you know, when I was a, yeah, and I'll give you maybe too much information here, but you know, when I was a young, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth grader, I wanted to be a pediatrician because I love babies. And then when I was in eighth grade, freshman year of high school, I wanted to be a marine biologist because I love sharks. 
And then when I went to college, I didn't know what I wanted to be. Um, And I met someone in college who had a cousin who was a midwife. And I said, huh, what's that about? And I learned more about midwifery and I call it the lightning bolt. It was, it was like a lightning bolt. I was like, okay, that's what I need to do. That's what I want to be. So I was going to a liberal arts college that was a four-year education. It was not a nursing program. And I knew when I was a sophomore that I wanted to be a midwife. So I actually ordered catalogs from a couple of midwifery programs that were in existence at that point in 1982 and 83 to date myself. And um, I graduated from college and I worked in an outdoor education program. And then I worked in a research lab. And when I got my job working in the research lab, I said, okay, so now it's time for me to apply to midwifery school and go to midwifery school. So I applied to midwifery school to attend at the time, which was one of two programs that you earned your nursing degree and your master's degree in the same program in a compressed three-year period. And the first year I applied, I got waitlisted. And at that point in my life, I thought waitlisted meant wait, and then they'll just call you when it's your turn. And sometimes waitlist means you don't get in. And I was a little bit shocked that I didn't get in. Yeah. And so then I worked for another year and I reapplied. And when I reapplied the second time, I broadened my horizons and I applied to some um, accelerated nursing programs as well. But I ended up getting into the, um, the combined nursing and master's program. And I did that. And so becoming an obstetrician just was never really on your radar. It was a midwife. It was never on my radar. I just never, um, you know, I wasn't really interested in going to medical school. I really, I, I, I looked at the philosophy of nursing and the philosophy of medicine and nursing was just a much better fit for me. Yeah. So I knew that I wanted to be a midwife period. That was it. You know, I had the, 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 the young child dreams of the pediatrician and mm-hmm. then the marine biologist. And then I learned about midwifery and I was like, that's what I want to do. Yeah. And yeah. You know, it might have, part of it also may have played into it is that I really couldn't imagine taking a scalpel and cutting into someone's body, which Mm -hmm. is what obstetricians do. Um, But I was never really interested in going to medical school and becoming a physician. I'm right there with you. I thought I might become a midwife, but then I had my second daughter um, three days after graduating from nursing school. And now I have all those other kids. Midwifery school did not happen for me. Yeah. I'm glad you became a midwife. Yeah, I probably would have been. You would have been. Yeah. I was a darn good labor and delivery nurse for a long, 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 long time. Yes. Yeah. So shifting gears, we're in the middle of impeachment proceedings. And I want to know what you think the impact of sort of this current time in politics has on the health and well-being of women and parents. Well, it's a very interesting time to be paying attention. And I feel many days like I have whiplash looking from, you know, train wreck to train wreck to train wreck. Um, I think that um, the impact that the current political climate has on women and children has been very devastating in a lot of ways. All of the programs that are important to women and children have been impacted in a negative way by the current administration, everything from uh, women's health 
um, funding, funding for Planned Parenthood, access to all methods of birth control, um, access to abortion care when needed, all the way to, you know, funding of Head Start, the SNAP program. I mean, there's just not, in looking on the horizon of what has been happening, I haven't seen, there's not been one positive thing for women and children under this administration. So the idea that, um, you know, in terms of impeachment, I mean, my personal belief is that no one is above the law. And what I'm listening to and what I'm hearing um, sounds to me like the president broke the law. And I feel that he needs to be accountable to that. He needs to be held accountable for that. And whether it ends up with him getting a slap on the wrist or getting removed from office is not going to be up to me. But, you know, I, I support the process and the words of the Constitution, which means that no one is above the law. I couldn't agree with you more. And honestly, I think that for many of our listeners, myself included, um, any kind of action to um, remove him from office, even if it is just a slap in the wrist, there have been so many assaults on women over the last three years that impeachment is going to represent a lot. It's going to, it's going to be a move in the right direction. Finally, something will have happened. There will be accountability. And, you know, when I think back on what's happening at the border, the Kavanaugh hearings, what's happening in education, what's happening in healthcare, all of it, there's going to be some accountability. I hope. I hope. I hope so. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I, I look at all the things, um, I look at all the things that have happened and really what it boils down to for me is it, it, this feels like a war on women and children. Yeah. Women and, and children people of stuck. color and people of color and people of other religions and rate and genders. I mean, it's a, it's a war on many people, but there yeah. are, there are people suffering. There are people dying. There are people who are really impacted by um, these cruel policies that are being promoted. And if impeachment holds this administration and its helpers accountable, I sure hope so. Yeah, I do too. Well, Chris, I'm going to ask you just a couple of wrap-up questions um, that I always make answer. Okay. How do you feel in the blank? Nobody ever told me that. Nobody ever told me that parenting girls would be such a journey. Hmm. What do you mean? Well, you know, the responsibility of helping young women be educated and strong and able to fend for themselves in the world is a pretty big responsibility. And, yeah. you know, making sure that they have all the tools that they need to take care of themselves and stay safe in the world is a big responsibility. And I think that um, maybe the world is just as safe as, or as dangerous as, as it ever was, but we have so much access to instant information that some days it just feels like a lot scarier place. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as I'm getting ready to send my older daughter off to college, I think about things like, 
well, did I tell her that she should always make sure that she has someone walk her home from a party to her dorm? Did I tell her that, you know, she needs to make sure that, that, you know, if someone makes her uncomfortable, she just gets up and leaves. And, you know, I mean, all those kinds of things. In addition to this is how you do the laundry and, and you need to make sure Mm -hmm. that you um, rinse out the milk container before you, you know, stick it in the recycling or it's going to stink up your whole house. I mean, all, you know, all those things that you want to teach your kids before they go. So any kid, but I just, because I have girls, I think about, I think about sending them off into the world and I want to make sure that they are going to be able to take care of themselves and that they're safe. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. Well, my last question then you've sort of just answered it, but maybe you have another, you have an addendum. Where are you in the world of motherhood? Uh, In the world of motherhood, I am right in the thick of parenting teens who are on the verge of adulthood. And your entire career is spent shepherding women and into their motherhood. You're surrounded. I am surrounded. And you still have a mother, don't you? Alive. I do. My mother is... um, in her late seventies, she is, lives in Portland. She is very involved in my kids in my life. And she is actually, as we speak, packing her suitcase to go to Morocco. Mm. What a fabulous role model. Yes. Uh, yeah. She has been a fabulous role model. Well, girl, our time has come to an end. Once again, you're, the episodes that I do with you are some of the most popular ones that we have. Well, I always love talking to you. It's fun, isn't it? We have a good time. We have very interesting conversations. and I Yeah, we do. Yeah. And I think that our listeners agree with us. Yeah. All right, Chris, I'm going to let you go. Happy Midwifery Week. Thanks so much, Jeannie. Yeah, I will raise a a glass in your honor. Back to you. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said. That's it for this week, folks. You can come on over to my website, jeanfaulkner.com, to learn all about me and pick up a copy of Mom's Side of the Story and take a look at the stuff we've got going on over there. Email me, jean at jeanfaulkner.com, and yes, I'll spell it, J-E-A-N-N-E-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R. Tweet me at Jean Faulkner and find us over on Instagram and Facebook at Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics. We are produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Picture Studios, and we'll talk again next week, everybody. Thanks for being part of the conversation. Bye-bye. Hey, guys. We're Sarah and Matthew Bivens, hosts of the Doing It at Home podcast, a show dedicated to empowering stories and resources around home birth. Our mission is to normalize home birth and encourage mamas and families to be educated, supported, and empowered by their birth choices whatever they are. You can find the podcast in Apple, Google, Stitcher, the Pod Network, and on our website, diahpodcast.com.